The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The last weekend of March, 150 years ago, March 26th, 1871, elections to the revolutionary Paris Commune were held 50 years ago. March 26th, 1971, East Pakistan declared it was throwing off the yoke of West Pakistan to become Bangladesh, and the War of Liberation was on. What a weekend to rise up against your tyrannous masters. But alas for some of us, the tyrannous master can barely rise to finishing his sentences. So the best way to get something done, if you... If it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to... Anyway. Okay. Um, hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh. I can see you lying down for an afternoon nap After eating tapioca from a tray on your lap Sundown in your bed to take care if you find Joe Biden. Joe? Give me a hand, Joe. Give, give me a shoe, Joe. Give me the nuclear football, Joe. Oh, never mind. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. But he's not going anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Joe Biden by the numbers. We have over 100,000 wellheads that are not capped leaking methane. What are we doing? And by the way, we can put as many pipe fitters and miners and us to work capping those wells at the same price that they would charge to dig those wells. So I, I, I just find it um, frustrating, frustrating. You talk about last point I'll make in the infrastructure, and I apologize for spending more time on it, but is that if you think about it, um, it's the place where we will be able to significantly increase American productivity at the same time providing really good jobs for people. But we can't build back to what they used to be. We have to build the environments are global warming's already done significant damage. The roads that used to be above the water level didn't have to worry about where the drainage ditch was. Now you got to rebuild them three feet higher. 
because it's not going to go back to what it was before, only get worse unless we stop it. There's so much we can do. Inspiring, isn't it? What we need to do is get all the pipe fitters to build new wells six feet higher so we can store all the methane from flatulent bovines and then cap them so we can rebuild the roads that are currently three feet underwater because of the global warming. So then they'll be three feet above the water, so the roads will be six feet socially distant from the earth, and then there's a chance Fauci will say they're safe enough for you to travel on to go back to work. Don't let anyone tell you the global superpower isn't serious. More thinking outside his box from sundown in Joe in another 65 days. Eskimo pie, Aunt Jemima's, Uncle Ben's, who's next? The Mark Stein Show presents Hey Lita, strike down the brand. 1959, created by Streets Confectionery. It was on top, but it's headed for the bottom. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. It could be that great chalk and biscuit coating. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. It could be that smooth toffee ice cream in the center. Or that whole delicious golden gay time taste. It's so hard to have a gay time on your own. Street's Golden Gay Time. Now available in smooth chocolate, mouth-watering mint and scrumptious strawberry. Actually, it's not that hard to have a gay time on your own. I did it myself about 15 years ago in Australia. Uh, I was out for a stroll before uh, doing my turn at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and had a sudden impulse for an ice cream and decided to go for a golden gay time. That's ice cream dipped in chocolate and uh, coated with honeycomb biscuit. I had the mint flavour. Very nice. Did the trick. It's really super easy to have a gay time on your own. Or it was until a censorious member of the LGBT QWERTY community decided to accuse the golden gay time ice cream manufacturer of orientational appropriation. We have uh, dealt with in... Uh the past couple of years about the naming of things and whether they are offensive or not to certain groups. Now, Coon Cheese, of course, named after the person who uh, did the pasteurisation process, was deemed to be offensive because that word is also obviously a racial slur. Things like redskin have also been deemed to, to be so, thus have now been changed. Things like Chico's as well. Well, and uh, Petition has popped up at change.org.au to change the streets ice cream, famous ice cream that's been around since the 1930s, of golden gay time because of its potential offence to LGBTIQ plus communities. And the person behind it is Brian MC. That's uh, the name he's uh, given us and the name that is on the petition. Brian is on the telephone now. Uh, Brian, put simply, uh, what is straight out offensive to you about the term gay, golden gay time? Well, I just feel that at this day and age, the gay is a sexual orientation and it's double meaning. Um, being joyous or happy is an outdated meaning. I've had to go through a lot uh, to find my sexuality, to be a proud gay man. Um, I've gone through many parts of my life, as I say in my petition. Um, I just feel that historical brands you know, obviously exist within the country, as you've said, 
Redskins and a few other examples um, have, have upsetted their names. Um, I just feel that it's time that Golden Gate time follows. Many words in English have two meanings. A case is, on the one hand, uh, something that... Uh, climate huckster Michael E. Mann brings against you to ruin your life. But on the other, it's also a unit for bulk buying beer to ameliorate the effects of Michael E. Mann ruining your life. But in this case, uh, Brian is saying this particular word cannot share two meanings because it's exclusively his. The Australian gay community insists on having a gay time on its own. That's identity politics for you. No possibility whatsoever of a shared golden gay time. We're all in golden ghettos. As far as I can tell, every product in Australia has an offensive name. We've covered some of them here. Coon cheese, named after a Mr. Coon, uh, who developed its distinctive pasteurization process. Coon cheese is now cheer cheese. Uh, notwithstanding the innocent origins of its name. Redskins, raspberry chews are now Red Rippers. Chico's chocolate jelly babies are now Cheekies. Uh, these are all fairly lame new names for these products. Perhaps streets will buck the trend and do a big up yours to Brian and rename Golden Gay Time Flouncing Flamer Time or Pissed Off Poofter Time or Surly Sodomite Time. But I expect they'll just come up with something as boring as cheer cheese. Golden, golden time. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide totally non-orientationally appropriating. Do you like Ben and Jerry's? I don't. They only put all those chunks of other products in because the actual ice cream, the ice cream itself sucks. But when same-sex marriage was legalised, they changed the name of their chubby hubby ice cream to hubby hubby and had checkpoints on the uh, interstate to hand out free samples, presumably with Vermont state troopers on hand to see if recalcitrant homophobes were choking on it. If you're wondering what's in a tub of hubby-hubby ice cream, well, there's two bananas and twice the nuts. I did that joke on Rush and there were complaints, because these days there always are. So make the most of this, because if Brian gets his way, it'll be gone soon. <laughs> Have a gay old time because we're yabba-dabba done. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. You know those banana republics where the local strongman likes to adopt the pretense that there are free and fair elections... 
but then harasses his opponent by claiming his rallies infringe various bylaws uh, and have to be locked down. Well, welcome to London, where the incumbent mayor, Sadiq Khan, is being challenged by Lawrence Fox. Mr. Fox is part of a great British theatrical dynasty going back to his great-grandfather, the playwright Freddie Lonsdale, his dad's James Fox, who was terrific with Dirk Bogard in The Servant, his uncles are Edward Fox from The Day of the Jackal and Robert Fox, the producer of Chess and The Boy from Oz. Uh, unfortunately, since he dissented from... Meghan Markle's view of British racism, the acting work has slowed a bit for Lawrence. Uh, so he's running for Mayor of London on the Reclaim Party ticket. The other day, two officers from the world champion wanker constabulary, the Metropolitan Police, showed up with a very polite suggestion, very polite, that his interactions with the electorate may be in breach of Covid regulations. Hi guys, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, yeah. Good. Uh, we've just had a report, basically, of mm -hmm. somebody reporting you to us about breaking COVID rules. Right. About your campaigning for the mayoral election. Right. Okay. Uh, apparently, he's saying that um, the rules were relaxed in the 8th of March for sort of door to door canvassing, but you've been apparently meeting big groups in London and, and running your campaign that way. Um, we haven't got any evidence of that per se at the moment, but I okay. just want to sort of let you know to be mindful about what is being reported, what you're doing, and obviously quite in the headlines at the moment. Um, so yes, just to sort of just to let you know that it has been reported, and just to be sort of mindful of the, the rules and other sort of changing on a fairly regular basis. Um, so just sort of keep yourself up to date with what is the current rule before you sort of do anything or go out meet anybody. Got ya. Okay. Thanks, gents. Anything? No, I'm all good, thanks. Okay. All right. That's it. Right. Have a lovely day. Have a good day. See you later. Bye. Operative words there. Quote, we have no evidence but... Uh, in that case, why are you knocking on his door? If you have no evidence of a crime... Why don't you just take him to the police station and uh, bang him up and he can sue you for wrongful arrest? Right now, the supposed Tory, the quintessential Tory buffer, Boris, is buggering Britain. And on his watch, the United Kingdom is a country where any politician from outside the mainstream, genuinely outside, uh, not a poser populist like Boris, but genuine outsiders uh, in politics get harassed by the coppers, as Nigel Farage was last year and Lawrence Fox was this week. All very Latin American. Maybe the next phase is that the police chiefs with reflector shades, Dame Cressida Dick would look good in a set of those, don't you think? Uh, maybe the police chiefs with the reflector shades will start running for office themselves. Nevertheless, for the second week running, let's give the Met the full wanker. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat?
Here he is, the man who should have won the last Tory leadership race. Thank you, Mark. Late last week, the Conservative Party of Canada held its big biennial convention. Well, it was virtual, so in fact, it was actually just a big three-day-long Zoom call. But in any case, it was one of Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole's first big opportunities to address the base of the Conservative Party and, yes, by extension, address the country as well. And what did he do? He called for the party to change. The courage of Canadians has helped our country weather the storm of this last year. The courage of the nurses and doctors on our front lines. The courage of personal support workers who put their own health at risk to help our seniors. The courage of families caring for a loved one or comforting their children. The Conservative Party must show that we too have the courage to meet this extraordinary moment and change. This is the party that elected Aaron O'Toole as its leader just seven short months ago, but now it's no good in its current form, he says. Now, what is the pressing concern that the Conservatives need to embrace to change, in his view? We all want a green future for our children. We cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. Ah, yes, we cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. That was on Friday night, and on Saturday morning, the debate certainly was over because Conservative Party of Canada members voted down a resolution to say that climate change is real by a margin of 54% to 46%. Now, this concept may seem a little bit foreign to non-Canadians. We don't have a primary or caucus process here. It's a small number, relatively speaking, of members of political parties who elect the leaders here, which means that it is the base that determines the leader more than anything else. As Mark always said, it's easier for the base to get itself a new elite than the elite to get itself a new base. And that means that the Conservative Party of Canada's base can, as it did, tell their leader to go pound salt if the leader tries to reshape the party in an image that simply isn't authentic. Now, I'm of the mindset here that Aaron O'Toole can believe whatever he wants. He was very clear to say that he also supports jobs in the economy and he doesn't want Justin Trudeau's carbon tax to become a defining characteristic of Canada. That's all well and good. But to tell your members the debate is over and the next day have them tell you no, it's not, suggests that the Conservative Party is going to be once again its worst enemy. Going back to that bit about change, not climate change, but conservative change, Aaron O'Toole said that the Conservatives can't just keep doing what they've been doing the last few elections and hoping that people will just all of a sudden start to see things their way. Sure, but if you're talking about changing your values rather than changing your communication of them, you've already lost. And most people would look at the Conservatives' poor showing in the 2019 election in which Justin Trudeau won yet again, albeit with a minority government, as evidence that the conservative strategy of trying to win on the left's turf simply didn't work. So there's an argument that being conservative and sticking to your guns isn't actually the same old at all. That could be the courageous step that Aaron O'Toole is now calling on his party to embrace. But instead, it's about embracing things that the left has a monopoly on. In the Canadian political system, there are four political parties that exist to the left of the Conservatives. There's no benefit to trying to go and fight on that very crowded turf when no one is standing up in the mainstream discourse anyway for the things that Conservatives actually care about. Back to you, Mark.
Preach it, Andrew. You know, south of the border, on one of the last shows of his life, our friend Rush said that he was tired of Republicans who talk like Democrats, who sound like Democrats, who use the language of Democrats and thus accept the premises of Democrats. And that's what, in a Canadian context, Erin O'Toole did right there. On climate change, he talks like a Liberal. He talks like a Green Party leader. So why not go with an authentic Liberal instead of a Liberal pretending to be a Conservative? A Liberal who, uh, if you're lucky, believes in slightly lower tax rates, as Cathy Shadle used to say of many of the so-called Canadian Conservatives. For a brief moment, back when he self-detonated, I didn't think it was possible to come up with a worse Tory leader than Andrew Scheer. But Erin O'Toole is effortlessly outpacing him. You know, the Canadian Conservative Party does need to change. Uh, it needs to change into a genuine Conservative Party that, up against four left-of-centre parties, offers the electorate a real choice. Now, that requires... A Tory leader with guts, a Tory leader uh, who doesn't let the media set the agenda, a Tory leader who doesn't, quote, move toward the centre, but who moves the centre toward you, as Mrs Thatcher did. If this is who Erin O'Toole is right now, who's he going to be a week before Election Day? What is the point of O'Toolist conservatism if you can even say that phrase without laughing. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. China commands the airwaves, peonage in Georgia, and a king on your doorstep. It's March 1921. A hundred years from today. Your world news update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. Karl von Habsburg, the former Emperor of Austria and King of Hungary, has returned to Budapest in an attempt to reclaim his Hungarian throne. He entered the country on a forged Spanish passport and made his way to Sombate undetected. At the royal palace, the regent, Admiral Horty, was in the middle of his Easter dinner when the no longer King Karoy IV knocked on the door and tried to persuade the admiral to return his throne. Admiral Horty has to date remained unpersuaded and upon hearing of the ex-king's presence in the country, the new states of Czechoslovakia and the kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes have declared that a restored Habsburg would be cause for them to go to war with Hungary. Just south of that impending Czechoslovak-Slav war on Hungary, Greece and Turkey are already at war. The Greek army has advanced into the mountains and captured Adapazari and what they call Nicopolis and Dorylaeum.
If you don't like last week's New Republic, well, there'll be a new one along any minute. Following the Soviet conquest of the Democratic Republic of Georgia, a new Socialist Soviet Republic of Abkhazia has been proclaimed at its capital city of Sukhumi. The Bolsheviks may get their way in Georgia, but it gets trickier as they move westward. A few days ago, the Soviet Union asked the United States for a trade agreement between the two nations. President Harding's new Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, has now replied, stating that Washington will not resume trading relations until, quote, a regime of productive order is established in Moscow. While the US government, quote, views with deep sympathy and grave concern the plight of the people of Russia, Secretary Hughes says that, quote, in existing circumstances, there is no assurance for the development of trade. If fundamental changes are contemplated, involving due regard for the protection of persons and property and the establishment of conditions essential to the maintenance of commerce, this government will be glad to have convincing evidence of the consummation of such changes. And until this evidence is supplied, this government is unable to perceive that there is any proper basis for considering trade relations. In London, Britain's Labour Party is socialist but not communist, or not communist enough for Moscow's tastes. The, the Labour Party has voted by 521 to 97 to reject the 21 conditions demanded by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union before the Labour Party would be permitted to join the Comintern. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. And make them hug and squeeze you through Or if they don't, just say you won't come down until they do So wait till you get them up in the clouds, boys There won't be anyone to watch you there When you get her way up high, have all the fun you can There never was a girl who'd fall that far for any man So wait till you get them up in the air, boys up, 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 way up in the air. The Air Navigation and Transport Act passed by the Westminster Parliament has come into force, allowing relevant governments to regulate air traffic and navigation throughout the British Empire. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Up, 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 way up in the air. In Australia, the authorities will be assisted in that endeavour by the new Australian Air Force. The new Air Force has been upgraded from a mere Air Corps of the Australian Army into a standalone branch of His Majesty's Armed Forces. In the United States, Clyde Manning, the black foreman of white plantation owner John Williams, has led the police to various sites around Jasper County, Georgia, at which he and Williams buried nine Negroes Manning said they had murdered. Another two black men have been found in neighbouring Newton County. They were bound and weighted and tossed off a bridge alive to drown in the Yellow River. The killings are said to have arisen from yet another peonage scheme by which Williams went to other counties, paid the fines of Negroes who had run afoul of the law, sprung them from jail 
and brought them back to Jasper County to work their debts off in forced servitude. If Williams and Manning ever face the death penalty, they will be hanged for their crimes. In Nevada... If you don't care for the rope, you can choose a firing squad. If five men cannot be found to form a firing squad, you can get the same result via a shooting machine. But now the state has opted to replace both hanging and firing squad with a new method by which poison gas will be pumped into the convicted man's cell until he is dead. In Tokyo, a fire has destroyed over a 1,000 buildings and caused $12.5 million in damages. In sports news, we have a new association football team on the international scene. A team representing the Dutch East Indies has beaten British Singapore 1-0. Radio broadcasting marches on. The government of China has signed a contract with the American Federal Telegraph Company to build the most powerful radio station transmitter in the world. Asharam Dalishan Shah was an Indian linguist and administrator in several princely states, but his lasting contribution came in books like a collection of Gujarati proverbs, through which he established himself as a critical force in the preservation of the Gujarati language and culture. Mr Shah is dead at the age of 79. His first great success, Captain Swift, was turned into a dramatic photo play just last year, but the author will not live to see any further picture adaptations of his work. Sydney-born playwright C. Haddon Chambers is dead at 60. John Burroughs was an American naturalist, friend and companion of eminent men from Walt Whitman to Theodore Roosevelt to Thomas Edison, and a man who denounced the authors of popular animal stories as nature fakers peddling yellow journalism of the woods. He died while on a train travelling through Ohio, which is surely a bit of a dull way to go for a naturalist who led such an exciting life. Mr Burroughs was 84. Nothing so prosaic for the great Berber warrior Muha Uhamu Zayani, a great scourge of French military forces in Morocco, the Kaid of the Zayans, died in battle against his son at Azalag Ntazamorte. And that's the way of the world. March 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. March 
Mark's Mailbox is on the air. A few days ago, we had some developments uh, in Vanity Plaintiff and Numero Uno Global Warmonger Michael E. Mann's defamation suit against me, soon to enter its 10th year in the choked septic tank of the District of Columbia Superior Court. And I happen to link to my recent deposition by man's lawyer, John Williams, and really a remarkable number of people clicked on that deposition. I'm uh, suddenly in the top 10 on the deposition hit parade uh, this week, so I thought we'd uh, riffle through a few of your comments about that deposition. Tina Trent says, I've never laughed out loud through 160-plus pages of a deposition. Stein could turn this into a dramatic reading like the vagina monologues, only, of course, in no way whatsoever. <laughs> like the vagina monologues, and fundraise the rest of his defence. I'm surprised that lawyers aren't paying Stein just for the chance to represent him. Do uh, read it. Uh, that's really not how lawyers think, uh, Tina, as uh, my old chum from the Canadian human rights battles uh, of many years ago, Julian Porter, QC, observed, <laughs> I make for something of a mercurial client. Um, but Peter says, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, one could easily hear Mark's actual voice going through the transcript. If this legal stuff ever ends, Mark should definitely do an audio version of this, the best parts anyway, as a real-life Tales for Our Time, and market it. Would not nearly make up for all the financial and other aggravation but at least would be a better courtroom story than any John Grisham book. You might be right. You never know. I have been deposed between Carrie Katz and Michael E. Mann. I have been deposed an awful lot in the United States. And uh, maybe we should attempt uh, to get... <laughs> some sort of one-man show out of it. Richard Malaby says, that deposition is worth the price of admission. Cats, Lindsay Lohan, Gaspé Peninsula, citing a, quote, genuine Nobel laureate, not a poser fraud laureate like your client, unquote. The Prince of Montenegro. Yeah, they're all in there. Uh, Lindsay Lohan, the Prince of Montenegro, the Gaspé Peninsula, they all occur in the course of my deposition. Uh, reading those sorts of things about Fowler and Lowry, that's National Review's uh, two big honchos, reading those sorts of things about Fowler and Lowry is upsetting but not surprising. Man's lawyer, what a weasel. If this ordeal is ever done and dusted, hopefully Mark will write an insider's perspective on the American judicial system, specifically attorneys. May I suggest the title? A Disgrace to the Profession. Uh, you know, there's there's really no one better for that than my old friend Conrad Black, because he was on the receiving end of far worse than I. Alan Breedlove writes, The deposition is brilliant, often hilarious, and a searing indictment of the American judicial system. That this has dragged on for eight years is a disgrace. Williams, man's attorney, tried mightily but failed to entrap Stein to commit perjury or to contradict his earlier testimony. The more Williams tried to build a case of injury by defamation, the more he exposed his client as a vile and petty tyrant. Stein has kept the focus on what this legal fight is truly about, a criticism of two Penn State internal investigations and an opinion columnist's right to a 
spine about them. Yeah, that's right. There's the two investigations. They were both crooked, corrupt, rotten. The one of Sandusky and the football uh, and the uh, football program, and the other about man and uh, the science uh, program. A tour de force, says Alan uh, Breedlove. Uh, Christopher Gelber says, I'm 125 pages into Mark's deposition and were not for his jokes about his over-credentialized young daughter, Conrad Black being a new friend before he became an old friend, and the top 41 song, I'd be finding ways to self-harm for fun by now. I'm also a commercial lawyer of too long standing and was, was going to say I'm ashamed of my profession, except that what is happening to Mark bears little relation to any legal process I recognize or could possibly respect. There goes my shot at the DC bar, I guess. Oh, don't be so modest. Uh, don't be so modest, Christopher. Lawrence Edwards says the deposition transcript is a work of art. You should attach an NFT to it and sell it. It should be in the National Gallery. It should be on the curriculum in schools. There should be a play in a film uh, based on it. Uh, bravo. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, uh, Tari Christ says, can we see the video or hear audio? of the deposition. You actually make a deposition entertaining. I would also love to see or hear the attorney's reaction to Mark Stein. Well, 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 Tari, uh, video and audio does exist. I have to check on whether uh, we have the right to uh, post that. The deposition itself is part of a court filing, so it's a public record, so we're allowed to post that. Uh, I don't want to get on the wrong... I know this is the fourth trial judge and there'll be a fifth trial judge along in a couple of months. Um, but as long as the fourth trial judge is there, I don't want to get on his wrong side. So I'll check that out and maybe we will post the video or the audio or both. Uh, because uh, I'm rather touched by the reaction. If I if I'd known if I'd known my deposition was so popular, I wouldn't be wasting time with uh, books and columns and TV shows and radio shows and stage appearances and CDs and all the rest of it. I'd just have done depositions. If I could wind back the clock, I'd just turn back the clock decades and start out as deposition boy. So thank you for that, Tari, and we'll look into it. Final note. Final note uh who's that this is from uh ed uh says mark reading your deposition it seems to me to be in penn state's best interest to have man's lawsuit go away what do you think i would agree with that you know penn state uh at the time all this was going on was an absolutely depraved institution and the man who ran it was uh michael e Mann's mentor and friend, the president of the college, the university, uh, Graham Spanier. And he's, uh, he's no longer the president. And I would not think that his successors actually want to have a trial in which the fact that they covered up for serial child rape, uh, as well as a lot of uh, comparatively minor offences like Michael E. Mann's dodgy practices... I would not think they would want to have that period of Penn State University under scrutiny in a trial. So you might be right about uh, that, Ed. But thank you so much. Thank you so much for all your kind comments about my deposition. This has been an even bigger hit for me than Cat Scratch Fever. Mark Stein is breathing new life into death. 
The Mark Stein Club is proud to present a new weekly audio special, a serialization of Mark Stein's Passing Parade. Tune in every Saturday as Mark shares obituaries and appreciations for folks from Ronald Reagan and the Queen Mum to Ray Charles and the guy who invented Cool Whip, exclusively for members of the Mark Stein Club. Find out more by going to www.steinonline.com. Mark Stein's Last Call. Some of the saddest stories we've covered in our COVID necrology this past year are those of survivors of the 20th century's many horrors, the Spanish flu, the Holocaust, Chernobyl. It seems particularly unfair to those who make it out, who make it through, who survive, to then bestow upon them half a century, a century later, the kiss of the COVID. The name Lidica is not well known outside Czechia, the Czech Republic, but it has the distinction of being the only massacre the Germans boasted about to the world. Lidica is a little ways northwest of what was then the Czechoslovak capital of Prague, and it had the misfortune to attract the eye of the German occupiers. The story begins with the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, an impressively evil man, even by the standards of the National Socialist Party. Heydrich helped organise Kristallnacht. Uh, he supervised the Einsatzgruppen, the paramilitary death squads who followed the German military across the continent, massacring civilians. Uh, up to two million of them. And in 1944, he chaired the meeting that came up with the so-called final solution, the planned extermination of all Jews in Europe. Uh, not surprisingly, such a man impressed Hitler, who called Heydrich the man with the iron heart, which is high praise indeed from the Fuhrer. Uh, and then the Führer put him in charge of what he called Bohemia and Moravia and sent him to Prague. It was hard to get at powerful A-list Nazis in Germany proper, but in the lands they occupied, the situation was different. And in London, the British government and the Czechoslovak government in exile figured they could get him. The special operations executive trained up a team of Czechs and Slovaks, parachuted them in, and six months later, May 1942, they struck. With every second that passed, the risk of them being noticed loitering grew. Finally, just after 10.30, Balchik signalled the Mercedes was coming. Seconds later, a Palka set off across the road. A tram rounded the corner. Kapchik stepped out, but his sten jammed. Instead of accelerating away, Heydrich ordered his driver to slow. Kubish pulled the grenade from his briefcase. Heydrich was hit by shrapnel. Even so, he decided to take them on.
Heydrich was reckless but appeared to have survived. He was taken to hospital and a week later was dead of septicemia. It was a humiliation for the Germans and a personal loss to Hitler, who'd been planning to put him in charge of occupied France. And so the decapitated regime in Prague was ordered to take a very public revenge. Two Czech villages were chosen to be wiped out completely, supposedly for the crime of hiding the assassins. That was not true. But nevertheless, on June the 9th, 1942, the Germans arrived at Lidice, a village of about 500 people, and came to the home of a nine-year-old girl, her older brother, and their parents. Here is that little girl, Marie, many years later. No, a my jsme bydleli v tom prvním domku, když se šlo teda do Lidic, z toho Buštěhradu. A... There's a plaque there now, says Marie, noting that the Germans set up their headquarters in the family home that night. The following morning, they went down the road to the Horak family's farm and commenced shooting every male in Lidice older than 15. They were lined up against the wall of the Horak's barn, 10 at a time, and as each group fell, the bodies were not removed, so that the next deck Tet knew they were merely the next addition, the next layer on the mound of massacred villagers. 173 men died that day. Another 19 were tracked down and killed in the days afterwards. Only three men from the village survived, two because they had already fled to England and were serving in the Royal Air Force, and the third because he had been in prison for four years. When he was released, he went straight to the authorities and confessed to being from Lidice, said he approved of the killing of Heydrich and demanded they shoot him. The Germans laughed at him and sent him away. And so Frantisek Seidel became the only man from Lidice still in Czechoslovakia to survive the massacre. As for the 203 women and 105 children, the infants were separated from their mothers and the four women who were pregnant were taken to the same hospital where Reinhard Heydrich had died and forced to undergo abortions. Four days after the massacre of their menfolk, the other women were taken to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where almost all died. Of the 105 children, a few were deemed to be sufficiently racially pure for quote-unquote Germanization and were handed over for adoption by SS families in the fatherland. On July the 2nd, the remaining 82 children were sent to the Chelmno extermination camp 40 miles away to be killed in the gas vans the Germans had developed as motorised death machines. Another six died in the orphanages for the Lebensborn. In the end, just 17 children survived. One of them was Marie Supikova, who was nine years old in June 1942. Her father was murdered on that first blood-soaked day of June the 10th. Her brother was killed later. Her mother would survive Ravensbrück concentration camp, but her health was broken and she was dead six months after liberation. Marie Supikova, as she explains here, was one of seven children, six girls and a boy, considered Aryan enough 
to be put up for adoption. Měli rajtky, holinky. No a měl ten jeden měl She was the only one of those chosen who was not blonde. But nine-year-old dark-haired Marie was selected for Germanization, adopted by a German family, and became Ingeborg Schiller until the end of the war. And then once more Marie and not Ingeborg a 15-year-old girl testified at the 8th Nuremberg trial about the SS racial policies and the crimes against humanity she had witnessed. 80 years ago, Germany was a killing machine, a very efficient one, brilliantly organised to slaughter millions of civilians. But they did it on the sly, on the quiet. Lidice was the exception, the one they boasted about, because... Having lost Reinhard Heydrich, they didn't want other big-shot Nazis being picked off in distant outposts of the Reich. So the government of Germany announced to the world that they had killed Marie Supikova's family and almost all her neighbours, hundreds of them. Here's the president of the Czechoslovak government in exile, Edvard Benesch. As a matter of fact, there has undoubtedly been a number of similar crimes committed by the agents of the Herrenfolk throughout occupied Europe. Villages have been exterminated in Norway, in Poland, in Yugoslavia, in Russia, and in other countries under German rule. But in all these other cases, the Germans try to conceal their barbarous action from the outside world. The president calling attention to the fact that German press and radio announced the news of the atrocity of Lidice with evident joy and satisfaction. In England, a group of coal miners formed an organisation pledged to rebuild one Czech village when this filthy war was over. Lidice shall live. The Lidice shall live movement conceived in Britain very soon after the Nazis' brutal blotting out of that Czechoslovak village, received its official blessing when President Benesch recently visited Hanley in Staffordshire. He inspected a guard of honour composed of many service units, and he met a number of British miners. It is their solemn pledge that just as the miner's lamp lightens the coalface, so they must and will bring light to comrades now struggling in the darkness of Europe. The president of the Mine Workers' Federation of Great Britain, Mr. Will Lawther, was their spokesman. Today we pledge ourselves to rebuild this, and we renew that faith and determination to see the struggle through to the bitter end, and death to Nazism and fascism. Lidice shall live. And after the war, Lidice did live. And after living with her aunt for the remainder of her childhood, Marie returned home to a new Lidice near the site of the original village. She was a great survivor and became a symbol of survival against all the odds until the Chicom 19 came a-calling. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 88, Marie Supikova.
Yarmila Novotna from her famous album of songs of Lidica, Whose is the Dark-Haired Lass? That will do it for today's show. We will have music and movies, Mark Stein's Passing Parade, and a new tale for our time all weekend long. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.